Today's reading is Acts 26, and we're going to read the whole chapter. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that is before you came Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of, them, many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O Cain, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, which shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen to me, which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophet, prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying the, these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, 
you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, we are going to continue our series in, in Acts uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to actually cover uh, chapter 25 and 26, but I'll, I'll, I'll cover 25 uh, really kind of as some background, and then 26, which was just read, as kind of our uh, to draw application from this morning. Um, I feel like this will be the second sermon after uh, one that's actually been act- enacted out uh, this morning. Um, such encouraging words. Love a guy who'll open his Bible and challenge us from it. It's my kind of people. Um, and, and to be encouraged by that, and I am encouraged by um, Bloomfield Presbyterian. They've been here way longer than us. And to have the example of churches, brothers and sisters working together, uh, not in competition with one another, but in collaboration with one another, um, for the for the greater good of our community, um, and um, that's the way that it, that it should be as a faithful witness um, of of the gospel in that way. And the gospel is both proclaimed, as we will see um, here, and it's both demonstrated, uh, as we've seen throughout the the book of Acts. And a proclamation of the gospel without a demonstration of the gospel um, is really a hollow, empty kind of gospel, isn't it? Um, and so we want to be the kind of church that is. Isn't just here to to preach, as it were, in that way, but as a as a community that is living here um, as well. Um, the goal isn't to try to make people like us. Uh, the goal is to ask people to join us in being like Jesus, um, as we are are on that path as well. And so, this is what we're going to look at a little bit this morning. We're going to see this idea of living as faithful witnesses, um, and that is both done through demonstration and through proclamation. And what we see here uh, is, is mostly proclamation by Paul, but as we've seen really in the 24 chapters already leading up to this, is both word and deed, how the church will uh, both demonstrate, serve, serve um, the poor, of which they were as well, um, who will sacrifice, who will give, uh, uh, but will also proclaim those things as well. Um, this will be my last sermon in this series, so uh, Friday I fly out to the U.S. for two weeks, so I would uh, appreciate your prayers in that. I'll be preaching in Los Angeles, I know, uh, the hard gig. Um, uh, next Sunday, um, escape our eternal winter. I, I think spring is finally trying to break in this week. It's supposed to get warmer, but I don't care. I'm going to California, so it can, do, it can snow here for all I care. 
Um, I know the Lord will probably like give me good weather here and it'll like freak out like snows and tornadoes in Los Angeles <laughs> while I'm there. But, um, so next week, um, Andrew will um, uh, look at the second to the last chapter and then John will finish us, finish us out. Um, and, and I'm going out to the States as part of my role with Acts 29. And I love that because uh, Acts 29, as you know, we're a church planting um, organization that wants to see churches planted across the globe. Um, and praise God that that's happening. Um, and so I'll be at a conference out in, in the West Coast as well uh, the following week. But we are called Acts 29, as you'll see uh, in a couple weeks. Acts, the book of Acts ends in Acts chapter 28. And it ends pretty abruptly. Like, it doesn't tie it all together. Like, it, it's a bit of a cliffhanger. Like, it just ends. The story just ends. You don't know what happens to Paul from, from, from that narrative. Uh, you have to find out in other places and through church history and things like that. But it just ends. Um, and, and I think that's intentional because it ends because it's just that story that's ended. Uh, we're a part of a, an organization called Acts 29 because it's, we're meant to be a continuation of what we see in the book of Acts. The gospel going out powerfully in demonstration and in proclamation. People um, uh, being converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those people gathering together in churches and then replicating that over and over and over again. And so Paul's task is the same as ours. Articulate the good news of a risen Christ and call people to put their hope and trust in him. Um, And that's what we're about. Uh, And chapter 26 has lots of transferable principles. We'll get to that. Um, Tony Morita has been been great in that and and brought some some of those to bear. But first I want to review chapter 25 to give us a little bit of the context. Um, And so as you know, um, Paul... Uh, has been imprisoned, and uh, we had Felix, uh, who was kind of the governor at that time. He gets um, fired by Nero, essentially, and now we have Festus. Uh, and um, um, here, here, here we're going to have Paul's defense in front of him. And so in these first five verses of chapter 25, Festus arrives in the Providence. He went up to Jerusalem from uh, Caesarea. The chief priests, the principal men of the Jews, laid out their case against Paul again. And they urged him, asking for a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush him and kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea, that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong with this man, let him bring charges against him. And so this is like a broken record, isn't it? It's the the Jews plotting to try to kill Paul. They don't really have any charges. Uh, Here's a new governor. Maybe this will be our opportunity uh, will you do us a favor and bring Paul down to Jerusalem? Because we're still trying to kill this guy. I don't know what happened to those 40 guys from last week if they died of starvation. Uh, remember, they weren't going to eat until they had killed Paul, and then two years go by. I'm guessing they got hungry and ate. Um, so maybe they're like, hey, this, this is maybe another chance uh, to be able to do this. Um, and so in, in front of Festus. Um, this is important, right? Here's Festus. Felix was the governor before and he gets recalled to Rome. He's out of the picture now. And this is just, again, we looked at last week, the sovereignty of God. Mary, if you remember, in, in Luke chapter 1, sings this beautiful song. Um, and in it, in, in uh, verse 51 and 52, she sings about how the Lord scatters the proud, brings down the mighty from their thrones, and exalts those of humble estate. And, and again, you just see this over and over again. Here's this powerful governor. Um, Paul uh, and his future is in his hand, and God just removes him and brings in somebody else. Why? To move the story along, to move the progression of the gospel along. Um, 
this is the words that Paul would write during these imprisonments, right? He would write to the church in Philippians. And um, he wants them to know something. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is being imprisoned, persecuted, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest uh, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord, how? How did they become confident in the Lord? By my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. God was doing his purposes. He was accomplishing his plans. And he's doing it by removing kings, imprisoning Paul, having him, having him speak to these other people. All throughout this is, is what's happening. And this is exactly what Isaiah 55 tells us. That God's ways are not our ways. His ways are above our understanding. We don't have the full picture. We can't see everything, and yet we trust the one who does. And so, as we were admonished last week, we faithfully serve Jesus, and we keep trusting him um, to do his work, even when we can't see it. Uh, in, in, in verse 6 then, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, this is uh, Felix, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried on these charges before me? So here's Paul arguing, facing these accusers once more. And he denies his charges again. Now, this is interesting because this is the first time that he mentions that he hasn't offended Caesar. So he brings Caesar, the emperor, into view here. And Festus could have easily closed this case. There was no evidence. There was no, um, these are just accusations against Paul. There's no evidence uh, that these charges are true. But again, wanting to do the Jews a favor, um, he delays things. He asks him, listen, do you want to go to Jerusalem? It'll be before me, but we'll sit and do this there. And again, the politics of the day um, are working against um, Paul and the Christians that are here. And what seems like the politics of the day, thwarting the gospel, holding things back, um, isn't at all. God is using those things. Uh, and so we need to be encouraged by that as well. There are times where we can be frustrated by the politics of the day, frustrated in government. We can be frustrated um, with all of these things, and yet we trust the Lord is still working and moving behind the scenes. The Lord isn't um, caught off guard. He's not losing sleep. He's not pacing around the throne room wondering what to do. And so they ask him, do you want us to take you back to Jerusalem? Um, maybe Festus thought he could get a little more clarity there of the situation. Um, but Paul wants the rule going out um, rule going back to Jerusalem out completely. And he replies in verse 10, really insisting that these charges are nonsense. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. He's, he says, listen, these charges are a nonsense, and you know they are. I'm not going back to Jerusalem. I'm being tried in Caesar's court where, where I should be. In verse 11, um, again, this is Paul and his bravery. He says, if I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. If I've done something worthy of the death penalty, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly receive that. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And then he, he 
makes his final appeal. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Um, And this is what he could invoke as a Roman citizen. Um, That was part of the rule of law, that you couldn't be sentenced to death. You you could appeal essentially to the higher court and go to Italy and be tried in a court there in um, in front of the emperor. So he invokes this privilege as a Roman citizen, not to be muddled around with anymore with the Jews. I want to, I want to go to Rome um, and appeal to Caesar. And my guess is, I think this is he knows this is his, his only hope for justice, humanly speaking, is to remove himself out of the influence of where what is uh, just to keep the Jews in Jerusalem happy. If he can get some distance, if he can get someone who doesn't need to do these guys a favor, who can just look at the case, just look at the facts as they are, there might be a hope for justice there. And so he appeals to Caesar. Um, and Festus then goes and he confers and he grants his appeal. Um, now, Caesar at this time would have been Nero. Um, but it, historians would tell us at this point in his reign, Nero hasn't started the kind of bizarre, violent behavior that he would come to be known for. Um, he hasn't really started persecuting the, the Christian church yet. Um, and so he appeals to Caesar. In verse 13, we see um, what happens then. It says, now some days had passed, and Agrippa the king and Bernice, um, who was his sister, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So they come with a courtesy call um, to greet this new uh, governor. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him, a death sentence. I answered to them that it was not in the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and not an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges against them. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. It's what I kind of thought. These are trumped up charges. This is Festus talking to King Agrippa. Rather, they had at certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Again, what does this all keep coming back to? The claim of the resurrection. Being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, that is Caesar, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. And so here we have uh, Herod Agrippa and his sister Bernice. They pay this courtesy visit to the new governor. And this gives Festus this opportunity to seek advice on the matter. He doesn't really know what to do here. There's charges that have been brought against him. I, I don't see any validity to those. And he's in a tight spot. So if I release him, I'm going to cause riots and chaos. Uh, that's part of why the last guy lost his job. Um, it's why I'm here, to kind of keep the peace. And yet he's appealed to Caesar. I need to send him to Caesar, but I don't really know what to, what to charge him with. Uh, this is interesting because Agrippa's familiar with Roman politics, and he's much more familiar with these Jewish disputes than a, a, a Roman pagan who doesn't, who's not really familiar with Jewish religion. So this is, this is King Agrippa. This is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, um, if you remember the slaughter of the innocents, his great-grandfather tried to murder Jesus while he was still a child because he saw him as a threat to the throne. 
Um, he's here with his sister. Um, uh, church history, or well, just not church history, historians at that time really think this is an incestuous kind of relationship that he has with his sister who moved in with him after her husband died, um, kind of openly, um, this weird relationship that's there. He's also the son of Herod Agrippa I, um, who we saw in Acts chapter 12, ki- killed James by the sword, had Paul imprisoned and was likely going to kill him had not God miraculously intervened. And so he's well familiar. His, his father, his grandfathers before him have dealt with all of these things. And now he's mainly ruling over the Gentile population. He's not been given control over the main Jewish areas of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, um, as his father had. But he does have the right to appoint, appoint a high priest. So he, he's got influence there. He's got um, uh, familiarity with, with the Jewish system, with the Sanhedrin that is there. And we see Festus coming before Agrippa. He doesn't really understand this resurrection de- debate. It's incomprehensible to him to, to, as a pagan, right? He just sees this as an internal issue. This doesn't have anything to do with Roman law. But Agrippa's curious, and Agrippa wants to hear more. He wants to hear Paul. So in verse 23, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered, they, as they entered the hall with the military tribunals and the prominent men of the city. So this is a, a big deal. He would have come with his purple, ro- uh, purple royal robes on. Um, there's a lot of pomp. Uh, military uh, men in their, in their uniforms, the prominent men of the city were all gathered together. And then at the command of Festus, verse 23, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, And all who are present with you, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not uh, not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing uh, uh, definite to write to my Lord about him there. Therefore, I have brought him before you and all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after I have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. You're like, duh. That is, that is unreasonable. So here you have a lot of these Gentile uh, uh, dignitaries that are there. And he's basically asking him to, you guys give me input. Help me assist in writing the charges against Paul. Um, I've got nothing to write. And he had nothing to write because there was nothing to write. He was innocent of these charges. Um, But he can't just send a a guy to Caesar without any kind of report with that. Now, here we have Paul, then, who's going to stand before this king. He's already stood before governors. Uh, He's already had to defend himself before the Jewish tribunal. And I want us to rewind back into the book of Luke, into chapter 21. Paul's not on the scene yet. um, But this is what Jesus told his disciples. um, And not just his disciples specifically, those 12 but really to all of his disciples that would come after him. This is what he says. He says, um, they will lay their, this is Luke 21, 12, but they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and in prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to to meditate beforehand how you answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is Jesus telling his disciples this, and this is the exact description of what Paul is in now. 
standing before the synagogues, the governors, the kings, to give an answer. And Jesus' command to Paul and to us is, don't be afraid in those moments. I'm with you. I will give you the words to say. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Our job is to just be representatives and an ambassador. And an ambassador just comes as a messenger. He comes on behalf of the ruler behind him. And that's our job. We come. God makes his appeal through us. It is God doing his work. It is God making his appeal. So, um, as as, uh, was read in chapter 26, and I want us to take nine applications for us. Um, And we'll move through these um, um, quickly. Nine applications. As we see Paul standing before the king now, as he makes his appeal, as he makes his defense, what are things that we can learn as Christians, as faithful witnesses to this? And if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, of which we normally have people, one, we're really glad you're here. You're welcome here. Um, But you get a privileged position um, of kind of getting to listen into the strategy of these Christians and what we're about um, in trying to convert you to Christianity. So, um, cat's out of the bag, all right? You're, you're in the strategy room now, and you just get to overhear it, all right? That's okay. Uh, no secrets. So first thing that I want us to see in Paul's defense is, one, be respectful when addressing unbelievers. Be respectful in that. We see in the first three verses, um, Paul comes, and he stretches out his hand, and he makes his defense. This, uh, this stretching out his hand, he's before the king, is a sign of honor, you know, it'd be, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know what it was like, but I, you know, when people go before the king and there's one of these kind of things, you know, I don't know if it's, if it's one of these, but it's, it was a sign of honor before the king. Um, he's being respectful uh, before him. He's not coming in, um, I'm innocent of these charges, you know better, you should know these things. He's calm, he's respectful. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today. Why? Because you're familiar with these things. You know um, the things that I will be speaking about. And so Paul addresses Agrippa with generosity and with courtesy. Um, and, and that's exactly what Jesus does, right? When Jesus is attacked, when Jesus is falsely accused, he doesn't lash out. Um, it was read already from 1 Peter um, but this is Peter, his commands to us. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. This is where these things start. It's in our hearts, we're honoring the Lord is holy. <laughs> uh, our primary concern is honoring Christ in all of these things. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the, for the reason of the hope that is within you. That's exactly what Paul has to do. And he, he's defending the resurrection. That's the reason for his hope. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Make your defense, yes, but do that with gentleness and do that with respect. And we know that, right? I mean, if you're on Twitter or anything like that, you've interacted with anybody, like any kind of uh, vitriol just shuts down the argument. People are nasty. You you don't want to listen to what they have to say. What we have to say is more important, but how we say it is also important. It also matters. Um, the medium is the message, as, as it is, as it was said, and that's true. Probably never more than in our day. 
Um, I see lots of people go along with things that aren't true, that are actually false, they're antithetical to uh, what Scripture says, uh, but they're kind of wooed into that. Why? Because the people are actually gentle and kind and nice, <laughs> and you're like, man, those people in, in some ways act more Christ-like than the people who actually have the truth. No wonder then you would go and follow them. And so we should always um, be, uh, when we're talking to, to, to anyone, but particularly non-believers, um, do that with gentleness, with respect. The second thing we see then is um, uh, application for us is share what it was like not to believe. Right? Um, now, if you're like me, you've been around church for a while, sometimes you can forget what that's like. Um, what was it like before I, I actually believed? And this is what he, he does, right, in verses four. My manner of life from my youth spent from my beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by everyone. Everyone knew what I was like. I'm not, I'm not a stranger here. I'm a well-known person. They've known me for a long time. If they're willing to testify according to the strictest part of, party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise that God made by our fathers. But he goes on, doesn't he? He goes on to talk about his life. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. Listen, there was a time where I was in opposition to Jesus, he says, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I was complicit in the murder of Christians. I went to different cities. He says, I punished them and often in synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Paul is describing what he was like before Jesus. He recounts his former way of life. And that's important for us, right? Often when we're sharing our faith, um, we, can, we can make it sound like we're just these perfect sanctified people now, of which we're not. We're sanctified, yes, but, but we're not perfect. We still struggle. We need to be able to admit that. And certainly what our life was like before Jesus. We identify with our listeners. This is why Paul writes to to former Christians, and he reminds them of what they once were. He's like, this is what it means to be apart from God. And a reminder, that was all of us. What you once were before Christ transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to light. And so summarize your experience of kicking against the goads, as Jesus reminds Paul, right? The, a goad is something that, um, um, you know, they would use that, like a cattle prod. We still use that word, right? I goaded them into doing something. You kind of chided someone into doing that. Um, what was it like kicking against and resisting Jesus? Explain your former assumptions, your former misconceptions, even your sins from which the Lord has delivered you. And this is what Paul does, right? He formerly had misconceptions about who Jesus was. He had assumed things uh, that weren't true, and Jesus opens his eyes to them. Thirdly, um, application for us is to exalt Jesus and not ourselves. And so this is what we see Paul do, right, in verse 12 um, through 15. He, 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 rec he recalls his experience of meeting Jesus. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when they had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? 
The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul's conversion story wasn't about Paul. His conversion story was about Jesus. Jesus is the hero of our story. And so when we're sharing our faith, um, share your testimony, share your experience. Um, But in that, which is what Paul does, in that Jesus is the center of the story. And so when we're sharing about our faith, we should speak much about Jesus. Um, Because without Jesus, without the resurrection, um, the rest of it doesn't really make any sense, <laughs> nor should it really be followed. It's oh, nice stories, it's moralism, it's whatever. But as Paul would even say, without Jesus and the resurrection, we're just miserable, pitiful people for following these things. And so talk about Jesus, speak about Jesus. And, um, and it's, it's, uh, that's important for us too, even as you're sharing your faith. Sometimes, you know, part of that is like we share our experience of community and church We want to invite people into that so they can experience that, and that's great. Um, But don't talk about village more than you talk about Jesus, right? Talk about Jesus. He's he's the main reason that we're here. We're not just here for uh, because we like the way we do church better than someone else. Jesus is the reason we're here. Um, And so I hope you like your church home. I do. I mean, it's my favorite church I've ever been a part of. But Jesus is the reason that we're here, and so speak about him. Fourthly, then, um, we need to share the need and the benefits of the gospel with all types of people. And this is what he does, right? Look at, this is Jesus. This is Jesus' words um, to, to Paul. He's recalling what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things of which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What is Jesus actually He's reminding Paul of what his mission is, and that mission is the gospel, to share the needs and the benefits of the gospel with all types of people. So four things within this subpoint of this, right, that we see in the gospel, straight from the words of Jesus. One, the gospel sets people free from spiritual confusion. Jesus says it, it opens their eyes. It moves them from darkness to light. Um, and praise God for that experience, right? To, for us to recall that for, for each of us. Um, to hear Rachel say that that experience has happened to her is amazing. Um, there's two other people within our congregation that have experienced that this month. That's why we're here. And so the gospel sets people free from spiritual confusion. We're able to see that Jesus actually is who he says he is. That the claims he, he's made are actually true. Secondly, the gospel sets us free from oppressive tyranny. Right? Jesus actually says um, that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, to the power of God. And the power of Satan is one of oppressive tyranny. It, it feels like freedom, right? Uh, you should eat of the fruit. God's trying to keep stuff from you. He's trying to hide stuff from you. You would have a better life if you took that fruit. You could become like God. And so what he promises is, us is freedom. And what you get as a result of following that is the opposite. You get slavery. 
We become enslaved, apart from the power of God, to our own desires, sinful desires that don't lead us into a life of human flourishing, but lead us into ultimately death, but along that way, brokenness, (laughs) A, a life without peace, without joy, without hope, without assurance, a life left up to our own power and strength. And that's not freedom at all. And so the gospel sets us free from the oppressive tyranny of the power of Satan. Thirdly, the gospel sets us free from guilt and shame, condemnation, eternal separation from God when we receive forgiveness of sins. Why? We're we're delivered from the power of Satan that they may receive forgiveness of sins. This is the whole reason for the cross. It's the whole reason for the the resurrection. The cross, the place where uh, Jesus receives the punishment of our sins that we deserved, that we get his righteousness that we don't deserve, right? The, The great exchange that takes place. And the resurrection is the receipt. It's the validation that Jesus was the one powerful enough to do that because he defeats death. He defeats ultimately what our punishment was. Death and separation from God. He goes through death and separation of God, through God so that you and I don't have to. And it's the resurrection that is the vindication and the validation that those things actually were true. We covered a lot of that over the Easter season. And then fourthly, the gospel provides a share among those who are sanctified, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Um, this idea of sanctification is just us becoming less like ourselves and more like Jesus. Um, we don't become sinless in, once we're Christians, right? We, we admit that freely. We want a culture of grace. Why? I'm a Christian doesn't mean I'm sinless, but it should mean that I'm sinning less or that my struggles are different. I, I'm, I'm getting victory over sinful areas of my life. Um, and then I have to move on to other areas because there's, there's much to, to work out in my life. My heart is desperately wicked, more than I can know. And God in his grace just reveals a little bit of a time and sanctifies me, brings me along, keeps forgiving uh, my sins as I cling to his grace. And the gospel provides uh, a place among those. It provides a home. Both in this life, here, within the local church, within Village, within Bloomfield Presbyterian, within Strandtown Baptist, within Kirkpatrick Memorial, within the, within the body of Christ, of which we are all one, provides us a home now, but also for eternity, in, pre, in the presence of Christ. A place of unimaginable comfort, of impenetrable security. And, it, and Paul says that he spoke these things to both great and small. And so we share the needs and the benefits of the gospel, but we do that with all types of people. All types of people. The gospel is for everyone. And so my encouragement um, from the scripture, first of all, is don't be enamored with power. Don't be enamored with great people. Right? There's very few great people that actually, um, in humility, bow the knee to Jesus. It's, it's most of us. It's most of us small people that actually recognize our need for that. So don't be enamored with people uh, by great people. 
they need Jesus too. They, they should hear the message of the gospel as Paul is. But as you see, so far, all of these great prominent people, people of, of prominence that he, he testifies the gospel to, so far, none of them have received that message. Now, he writes to the Philippians that some did, the whole imperial guard. We know there are people that uh, were in places of power that did. And so we share the good news with all, both great and small. Um, before God, there is no great and small. We're all the same. Um, the cross levels all of those kind of things. And when it comes to our need and response to salvation, Paul would write, there is no Jew or Greek. There's no male or female. These categories that we use to separate uh, people out from other people, when it comes to our need for Jesus and our response to him and receiving grace, those categories are all gone. We are all one people, desperately in need, the human race in need of the grace of God. Fifthly, stick to the message of the resurrection and call to repentance based on Scripture. This is um, what Paul does, isn't it? Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, that is what Jesus came, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and also the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with that repentance. And he's testified over and over again about the message of the resurrection. This is the emphasis of the entire book of Acts. One of the great things about just teaching through books of the Bible is that you see patterns, you see repetitions, you see uh, great dramatic themes that run throughout the whole thing. And with Acts, the emphasis has been the Messiah who suffered, died, rose from the dead as the scriptures foretold. And the outworking of that then into his people on mission. From the Old Testament into the New Testament. In some ways, it's a microcosm of of the entire Bible. The Old Testament starts with God um, revealing himself to a people, those people in rebellion to him, and yet him still calling a people to himself, to whom and through whom he would reveal himself. All the while in the Old Testament, through the prophets, um, through his word, revealing that that would come in the promised Messiah. That in the Gospels is revealed to be the person and work of Jesus through the death and the resurrection. This then, the book of Acts, the outworking of that, God again um, desiring a people to whom and through whom he could reveal his glory. And, the, and now it's not just the nation of Israel, but it's for every tribe and every tongue that you and I get to be included in. And that's our job. We stick to that message of the resurrection and call people to repentance. And also this call to repent and believe. It's not a popular message, but it's a biblical one and, and it hasn't changed. Our message doesn't change. Our methods do, certainly. Certainly some of the ways that were effective to reach people with this message um, generations ago are no longer really effective. Our time is different. Our tone, the way that we take the message, is, it has to adapt and to change for sure. But the message itself is still the same. It's the same old 2,000-year-old message. And it never gets old. Sixthly then, rely on God's help. This comment that he makes in, in verse 22. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to great and small. We need Jesus' help. We need his grace within that. And it's the grace that he promised us back in Luke 21. 
And yet so, so many times because of fear, because we're not relying on God, we're relying on our own selves. What if I don't know what to say? What if I don't know the answers to everything? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if I can't? And the right way to think about that is, why don't I do this? Because God can. And, and, and that, that means we're just faithful. We just rely on God's help. We need the grace of Jesus. You needed God's grace to become a Christian. You need God's grace to sustain yourself as a Christian. You need God's grace as you share the message so that other people can become Christians. Why? Because it's with that grace that they become. And so we keep Jesus at the focus and we rely on his help. Seven, make specific appeal kind of boldly. This is, this is great. I love Paul's kind of boldness in this. Look in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, hey, you know, you're insane. You're out of your mind. Verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. This hasn't been done... Jesus' ministry was public. You're aware of it. You saw it. And then he asked the question in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He's here making his defense, and yet he's not concerned about himself. He's not concerned about what's going in the report. He'll leave that to Jesus, who's promised him he'll make it to Rome. I've got an opportunity in front of the king. King, do you believe these things? Just ask them the question. Personally, do you believe this? And he does that because the gospel demands a response. It's not something that you can just kind of ignore. By ignoring it, that is a, it is a no answer, isn't it? Because if the resurrection, if the death and resurrection of Jesus is true, it changes everything as we've talked about. Like on a cosmic scale, it changes everything. And that demands a response. Are we willing to present these kind of probing questions? And that can be hard and that can be difficult. Um, but we do that with gentleness. We do that with respect. We do that in, in the context of these relationships that we have with people. And so we need to give clear chances to accept or reject Jesus. Um, there's a, a tool that uh, uh, I've been looking at. It's called Word One-to-One. So if, there's, if you're like, how would I ever like even just sit down with someone, a colleague, or someone that might be interested um, within that, um, we're going to buy some of these resources. And it's essentially the Gospel of John. You don't have to do any prep work ahead of time. They don't have to do any prep work ahead of time. It's, it's just taking chunks of the Gospel of John. The text is in the notes, and there's a few kind of questions, and that's it. You just sit down and go, well, would you want to read some of this together? Do you want to look at the life of Jesus and his claims together? And uh, would you want to meet for coffee? One coffee. And uh, after that, if you want to meet again, we'll meet again. And if you don't, that's fine. Like just real low key, meet for coffee and just open up the scripture. You don't even need a Bible. Like it's in there. It's pretty low key. No one's going to freak out if you're in a cafe, like kind of a thing. Just reading what, let the word do its job. Let the word, which is the power of salvation, the gospel itself to do its work there. Questions that are there, some notes that you can ask. It's just a a discussion. Really super simple. But it, it brings people to a place where they can actually have to think about and make these kind of decisions in their life. Eighthly then, be prepared for rejection and ridicule. Festus calls Paul insane. 
You are out of your mind, right? And at some level, that's kind of understandable because you believe in a guy who dead, who, who died, like we killed him on a cross, we put him in a tomb, and you're saying he's resurrected, like he's overcome death. And he's like, man, you've got too much education, Paul. You're, you've gone down this rabbit hole into some kind of conspiracy theory. You're now into insanity territory. You're out of your mind. And at some level, that's understandable because it is kind of a crazy claim that we make, isn't it? (laughs) And yet, there's all kinds of crazy claims that we have to believe that are still true in life. And so our job is just to be faithful. God alone is the one who opens eyes of hearts. He he alone is the one who converts uh, people from darkness to light, from spiritual death to spiritual life. We just trust him with those efforts, as Paul did in verse 24. Our goal is to please Jesus, not to please other people. If Paul's goal is to please Agrippa and to, and to placate Festus and the Jews, it's a completely different speech he gives, right? Ah, oh, listen, I'm a bit misunderstood, and I wasn't, he'll, he'd soften the message a little bit, and I, I'll, I'll be fine. It'll be, listen, I won't stir up trouble, and like he would do all, all kinds of other things, and yet not concerned about any of that. I'm going to leave the fruit and the results to the Lord. I'm just going to be faithful. Why? Because Jesus met me, <laughs> transformed my life, and gave me a job to do. And I'll just do that. And if that ends up with me dead, that's gain because then I get to be with Christ. And so we have to just be prepared for rejection and ridicule. That's part of the deal. Like Jesus promised us that. And then lastly, um, pray for people you're trying to share the good news with. In verse 29, and Paul said, whether short or long, um, I would to God, I wish to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I think that's a bit of humor. I wish you could be in my position. Well, minus the being in prison part. He says, I wish to God that you, that you, that all of you would become followers of Jesus. He has this heart of compassion for people before God. And may that be our heart cry as well. We actually wish to God that people would hear the good news of Jesus. And so, yes, we demonstrate the good news by our works, right? We want to, like, all the partnership stuff that's going on, absolutely. But, and our goal is to actually see people converted. Why? Not to make them like us, but that they, too, would experience freedom, that they, too, would experience hope and joy. And we do that in wise ways and smart ways, and we're not going in kicking down doors and preaching to people. But our, our goal is ultimately not just to make life a little easier now, um, but for eternity, And so may God grant us grace, like Paul, to be a faithful witness regardless of our circumstances, to have a heart of compassion for people, even whilst they're persecuting us, to be okay with where we end up in that, because Jesus is sovereign over all. This is why we meet in missional communities, to practice these things. That's why we, the O in core is, is, is for that. It's outreach, but it's not doing outreach. It's praying for people by name. Encouraging one another in our, in our boldness in that, in, in our, how, how, what are opportunities that we have? What's the best approach to that? Not to just grow our church, not to, to be able to score notches on some kind of a, a, 
a wind chart, but because we have experienced the goodness and grace of Jesus. And that compels us then to see others experience that goodness and grace, to experience a life of, of joy, even in hard and difficult times, in this life and the next. Because an eternity separated from God literally is hell. And so may we learn from those that have gone before us. May we be faithful as they were faithful. May we count, it, may we count the cost um, and be okay with that. Because Paul is literally following in, following in the footsteps of Jesus. Declared innocent by Roman authorities before a Jewish governor. The exact same position that Jesus is in. Paul is called to walk in those same footsteps. And you and I are called to walk in, that same, in those same footsteps. Circumstantially different because we don't have Romans and Jewish kings. But there'll be plenty of people that will say you're out of your mind. There'll be plenty of people who have wanted to condemn you. There'll be plenty of people who want to, whatever it may be, and yet we're called to be faithful because Jesus has <laughs> changed our life as he did Paul's. He's empowered us with his Holy Spirit and he's called us on mission as well. Let me pray for us. Father, we... Um, we need to be encouraged with the truth and with these experiences of these powerful men and women that, um, that have come before us to see the evidence of what resurrection people look like, that the resurrection of Jesus changed their life so dramatically. They were so radically changed and empowered by your Holy Spirit that they were willing to stand before kings, governors, armies, and to do that with humbleness and to do that with gentleness out of a real experience in their life. Father, this isn't hard. It's not complex. It's not difficult to understand in some ways, and yet it is hard to live out. And so we need your help, as we've seen. And so we ask for that this morning. Holy Spirit, give us courage. Stir our affections for Jesus that they would um, motivate our hearts that uh, our affections for things less than you, even good things or sinful things, um, would just wane in light of who you are, of your goodness and grace to us. And ask this in your name. Amen. We are going to come as we do at this time. Um, just invite you to stand and sing. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, um, you're welcome to the table as we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus with his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, um, to be reminded of this means of grace that we have. Um, and so there'll be two stations up here. Um, there's a small gluten-free loaf as well at both places so you can come and, um, and receive with joyfulness and gladness um, this means of grace to us.